Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. It's not the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles. But we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black gone, black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth a crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay? Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, kid, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock locked up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. The most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Discriminatory policies and practices pervade all stages of the criminal process. 
Black people are more likely to be stopped by police, detained pre-trial, charged with more serious crimes, convicted, and sentenced more harshly than white people. Next slide. These national trends are also reflected in California's criminal legal system, both historically and today. In the 2010s, California adopted a series of justice reforms that have substantially reduced mass incarceration. But while incarceration declined nearly across the board, by the end of the 2010s, men and women of color continued to be incarcerated at higher rates than white men and women, and some racial disparities actually widened. The likelihood that men of color were incarcerated at the state level compared to white men generally increased during the 2010s. In 2019, black men made up 28% of men incarcerated by the state, nearly five times higher than their share of all men in California, and black women made up 26% of women incarcerated by the state, more than four times higher than their share of all women in California. Additionally, while black Californians are, when black Californians are subjected to traffic stops, they are at least twice as likely to be asked to step out of a vehicle, to be handcuffed, or to experience a stop involving an officer's weapon. They are twice as likely to be booked into jail, despite the fact that searches of black people are less likely to result in the officer finding contraband. Next slide. Because of the well-documented overrepresentation of black people in the criminal legal system, the economic cost that that system imposes fall disproportionately on black people. These costs begin shortly after arrest with the requirement to pay money bail. Whether the person pays bail, almost always by paying a non-refundable fee to a bail agent, or whether the person remains in jail awaiting trial, they and their family experience enormous costs. Next slide. Money bail amounts in California are extraordinarily high. The median bail amount in California, $50,000, is more than five times the median bail amount in the rest of the country. Because money bail in California has historically been so expensive, the vast majority of people cannot afford to pay the full amount of refundable bail to the court. They therefore are forced to avail themselves of the non-refundable fees and predatory practices of the bail bond industry. Next slide. Commercial bail bond companies in California require people to pay non-refundable premiums of 10% of the full bond bail amount. Companies keep these premiums regardless of case outcome, even when formal charges are never filed in court, charges are dismissed, or the arrestee appears in court for all required hearings. Those who purchase or co-sign a bail bond, usually the family or friends of the arrestee, typically sign a legal contract obligating them to pay the full bail amount if a court date is missed. Occasionally, the bail agent requires the arrestee or family or friends to collateralize the full bail amount with real or personal property. If bail is forfeited, the agent may require payment of the full bail amount, in addition to other costs associated with the failure to appear and bond forfeiture proceedings. If neither the arrestee nor the cosigner is able to satisfy these costs with cash, the bail agent may seize and liquidate any collateral, often the home or personal property of the arrestee's family or friends. Next slide. Although paying non-refundable fees to bail agents can be ruinously expensive, the economic consequences of not paying money bail and remaining in pretrial detention are often as bad or even worse. When people are jailed, even just for a few days, they're at risk of losing their job, their income, and their housing. 
This sets off a cycle of jailing and poverty that can be nearly impossible to get out of. Not only do people held in pretrial detention often lose their jobs, but pretrial detention also has long-term effects on an individual's employment. A recent study found that three to four years after a bail hearing, people arrested who are not released are 9.4% less likely to be formally employed. People held in pretrial detention often lose their housing due to inability to pay rent. Income loss can also push individuals deeper into debt through missed payments to creditors, leading to a cycle of economic harms as vehicles and items needed for work are repossessed. Pretrial detention also puts enormous pressure on individuals to plead guilty. By cutting people off from family, friends, jobs, and communities, and subjecting them to the miserable conditions in jails, the criminal system puts arrestees in a position where they face huge incentives to plead guilty in order to end or minimize their pretrial detention. Numerous studies show that people who are detained pretrial are more likely to be convicted, more likely to receive a sentence of incarceration, receive longer sentences, and pay higher court fees. These negative case outcomes prolong separation from families and inability to make any, any significant amounts of money. Next slide. Next slide. The disproportionate number of black people arrested and charged, the higher bail amounts required of black arrestees, and the wealth gap for black families combined to put a disproportionate number of black people in pretrial detention, suffering the negative consequences discussed previously. One study found that black men received money bail that is 35% higher on average when controlling for the seriousness of the offense. It also found that money bail amounts for black people are on average $7,000 higher for violent crimes and $13,000 higher for drug crimes. Another study revealed that black arrestees were 66% more likely than white arrestees to be jailed pretrial. Looking at similarly situated arrestees, black arrestees were twice as likely as white arrestees to receive bond amounts they could not afford. Compounding the issue of higher bail amounts is the fact that black families are less likely to be able to pay any amount of bail because of the wealth gap. The average wealth for white families is seven to 10 times higher than average wealth for black families. More than one in four black households have zero or negative net worth. This gap represents the accumulated effects of centuries of institutionalized and economic racism. Next slide. And next slide. Um, bail uh, or pretrial detention are only the beginning of the many costs that the criminal legal system disproportionately inflicts on black people. Another direct cost of the system are fines imposed as punishment following convictions and fees which are charged to raise revenue for the court system. The majority of California's fees date back to the 1990s on the heels of the super predator myth a racist and debunked theory that predicted an increase in violent crime due to a generation of black youth who were supposedly prone to violence. As part of an effort to stave off the so-called super predators, the California legislature enacted numerous fines and fees, many that are still in use today. In recent years, California has become a leader nationwide in eliminating certain court fees and forgiving debts. But the laws do not go far enough. They have left in place county-level criminal fines state and local criminal fees, and non-criminal fines and fees imposed by the state as well as local government. 
They also did not reform or eliminate the state's fees for traffic tickets, which are among the highest in the country and disproportionately affect black people. Black adults in California remain up to 10 times more likely than white adults to be cited for a low-level infraction. One. Next slide. Thank you. Um, the incarceration of a loved one often has a profoundly destabilizing economic impact on immediate family members. Family members absorb financial costs of jailing, such as attorney's fees, phone calls, travel expenses, and commissary bills. These costs begin to stack up at the same time the family is losing the financial support of their loved one. A 1998 study of the female partners of incarcerated black men in a California state prison found that on average, women were spending $292 a month on visits, phone calls, and packages, equivalent to more than $450 today. Families also bear opportunity costs. People with incarcerated loved ones report that the incarceration has required them to work more hours, get a different job, or turn down an educational opportunity. The costs place strain on key familial relationships and communities. Prisoners speak of their reluctance to call family while in prison because of the monetary burden prison phone calls place on their loved ones. This strain on family relationships is starkly counterproductive to the goal of rehabilitation as studies have shown that the most important factor in a prisoner's successful reentry is a strong family relationship. Next slide. While California has made efforts to lower its incarceration rate and reduce racial disparities in the criminal legal system, decades of mass incarceration and racist laws and practices mean that significant generational damage has already been done. When a parent is incarcerated, family income drops significantly, and extended family members may have to share custody of children and take on additional caretaking labor. Families often obtain little to no increase in financial or material support when assuming child care roles. This lack of support and loss of resources creates a burden for family members across generations and pushes both older adults and children deeper into poverty. Once they have been released, justice-involved people face thousands of legal sanctions that can prevent them from getting a job, obtaining a license, attaining and maintaining housing, qualifying for public assistance, pursuing higher education, and changing immigration status. People with criminal records also face discrimination in hiring decisions. These impacts lead to higher rates of homelessness and unemployment, lower cumulative earnings, and difficulties pursuing educational opportunities. The consequences of having a criminal record have direct and substantial impacts on families, particularly minor children. The barriers undermine the family's well-being in terms of income, savings, and assets, education, housing, and stability, and in turn negatively affect family cohesion. As a result, people with records lose access to opportunities, driving and keeping their families in poverty across generations. Next slide. As I hope this testimony has made clear, the disproportionate costs that the racially biased criminal legal system imposes on black families are readily identifiable and quantifiable. These costs have harmed generations of black Californians and continue to cause immense suffering to this day. It is crucial that an accounting of the debts owed to black Californians as a result of the state's racist policies and practices include the costs of the criminal legal system. Thank you. Thank you so much, 
Catherine Hubbard for your expert testimony. It was incredibly informative. So we'll now go to our last uh, panelist for this particular panel, which is Max Markham. Max Markham, you can begin your expert testimony when you're ready. Good afternoon to the members of the task force, and thank you for having me speak today. Thank you, Chair Moore, for your recognition. And I have to say, on a personal note, I'm very honored to join such distinguished uh, panelists, many of whom uh, whose books I have on the bookshelf behind me. Uh, my name is Max Markham. I am the Vice President of Policy and Community Engagement at the Center for Policing Equity, which is a research and action organization focused on equity and policing that uses science to identify and reduce the causes of racial disparities in police interactions and advocate for large-scale and meaningful changes in public safety. I join you today on behalf of CPE in order to discuss the history of anti-black racism in policing and to address the ways that reimagining public safety and investing in black communities can serve as a positive step forward toward needed reconciliation and healing in this country. The Center for Policing Equity maintains the National Science Foundation funded National Justice Database, which we understand to be the largest collection of police behavioral data in the world. Our work focuses on combining police behavioral data, psychological survey data, and data from the United States Census to estimate uh, racial disparities in police outcomes, such as stops and use of force, and additionally, the portion of those disparities for which law enforcement is responsible and can do something about. We use the National Justice Database in turn to support the Justice Navigator, which is an interactive tool containing targeted analyses of police data and a range of resources to help drive changes to public safety. At CPE, we recognize that communities should be the architects of their own solutions, plain and simple. With that in mind, my team at CPE ensures that our work centers community voices and perspectives throughout our products, analyses, and policy recommendations. It is our goal to capture the community's sentiment regarding public safety and highlight experiences while addressing community needs. To do this, my team conducts detailed interviews with community members as, a part, uh, as part of a comprehensive qualitative data collection effort that informs policy recommendations to, to police and local government partners. Uh, my team also ensures that communities can easily access and understand our organization's analytic reports, such as Justice Navigator assessments, which ensures accessibility and transparency. Likewise, uh, our public safety redesign work in cities such as Berkeley, Ithaca, and St. Louis seeks to empower communities to express their needs directly and allows and supports them in crafting redesign recommendations and policy changes. I'll begin my testimony with a quick overview of policing uh, with the understanding this is surely not new information to members of the panel, uh, but hopefully serves to contextualize our policy recommendations uh, with also the understanding that there's limited time today. Uh, and then I'll turn to anti-black bias in historic and current instances of policing and some policy highlights. The first policing organizations in the United States originated in the early 1700s as uh, slave patrols, or vigilante-style groups of white men who enforced the practice of enslavement. They were selected and compensated by local governments, and they used systemic surveillance, terror, and violence to capture and return people who had fled uh, slavery and deter uprising. In the following century, formal municipal police departments began in major cities such as New York and Chicago. These departments lacked uh, training or standards, they were frequently corrupt, and they focused on controlling disorder along with crime. 
In the early 1900s, police departments were restructured and their goals were redefined to more closely re resemble the police departments that we see today. By then, technology had made it easier for members of the public to contact the police directly, which effectively allowed officers to distance themselves from the communities that they worked in. By the 20th century, policing had evolved significantly, though the roots of racism in policing were not eradicated. After the Civil War, police departments throughout the South enforced oppressive Reconstruction-era black codes, as we've heard already, which dictated how and where newly freed people could work, travel, and even live. In the 20th century, predominantly white male police officers in the South enforced Jim Crow laws. They ignored lynchings, and they used violence in response to civil rights-era protests. In the 1980s and 1990s, an increased focus on targeting minor crimes through foot patrol and the war on drugs resulted in an increased number of officers on the street, especially in non-white communities. And likewise, sweeping penalization measures such as the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, better known as the 94 Crime Bill, set the stage for mass incarceration and disparities in sentencing, many of which remain persistent sources of inequity today. And after the September 11th terrorist attacks, there was a further increase in local police budgets, militarization tactics, and surveillance authority in black, brown, and Muslim communities. Because of these policing tactics, as well as other changes to the criminal justice system, there, were a, there was a fourfold increase in the number of people incarcerated and imprisoned between 1980 and 2009. Today, there are more than 1.1 million people employed as police across approximately 18,000 law enforcement agencies nationwide. However, while local police agencies and cities have officers patrolling the street and are tasked with maintaining order and enforcing the law, uh, serious crime is typically not a large driver of community calls for service or of police activity. In one analysis of police department's work, uh, it was found that 4% of officer time was spent on serious crime. And depending on what resources exist in communities, police are often tasked with a wide range of other duties from mental health crises to responding to weather emergencies. In California, like many other states, redlining and discriminatory mortgage and lending practices deprived black Americans of access to neighborhood capital, healthcare, social services, and quality education systems underscored by the belief that black people would bring crime and undesirable activity into neighborhoods. As many of your other uh, expert witnesses have testified, and far more eloquently than I, the legacy of these racist housing and economic policies has resulted in stark racial disparities in wealth, in home ownership, and health, uh, in education outcomes that are all visible in many California communities and frequently deepened by infrastructural and environmental disinvestments. These same communities who have felt the historic impact of disinvestment also tend to be the most heavily policed and overly subject to punitive uh, criminal policies, which in turn spur the cycle of distrust of government and lack of participation in government. Thus, the unique needs of these communities are frequently underrecorded, and the power and strength of the community goes underutilized. The American public and, and Black Americans in particular have very low trust in police. Nearly 50% of Black Americans have little to no confidence that local police treat black and white Americans equally, and for good reason. Black people are disproportionately more likely to be stopped by the police, more likely to have police use force against them, and are more likely to be killed by police, especially when unarmed, as previous witnesses have indicated as well. And it should surprise no one to hear that an increased risk of police violence can and frequently does result in individual and collective trauma, which exacerbates all of the aforementioned community disadvantages. And likewise in California, 
anti-black racism is a root cause of mistrust between law enforcement agencies and the communities that they're sworn to protect and serve. A routine traffic stop of two black teenage brothers in the neighborhood of Watts in Los Angeles in 1965 erupted into a fight between the community and police and led to 34 deaths and thousands of injuries and arrests. As they were known, the Watts riots drew attention to the fact that white people, a white police force uh, patrolling the neighborhood was not representative of the community that it served, in addition to the brutal tactics of the militarized Los Angeles Police Department. Less than 30 years later, uh, the culture of brutality and racism was brought again to the forefront of the public eye after the acquittal of four officers caught on tape uh, uh, brutally beating Rodney King in the course of an arrest. Technological advances and the highly public nature of police use of force incidents over the past decade have once again called increased attention to the dangerous implications of biased policing for black American safety. In the 2009 execution of an unarmed Oscar Grant by a Bay Area rapid transit officer in Oakland led to uprisings in the Bay Area and served as a, as a very important precursor to the movement in defense of black lives and well-being. But to understand the factors that create inequitable policing, it's important to first understand how deeply ingrained cultural stereotypes can influence people's perceptions and behavior. Due to these stereotypes, people automatically associate black people with criminality, with aggressiveness, and with danger. People perceive a neighborhood's crime problem to be worse when more black people, particularly young black men, live in it, even after accounting for differences in actual crime rates. And people also view black children as older and less innocent than white children of the same age. This is a concept known as adultification and anger bias and can lead to black children's emotional expressions to be misperceived as angry or aggressive, increasing the likelihood that black children will be subject to harsher treatment by law enforcement and in schools. These stereotypes that I listed have consequences for encounters between police and members of the public. Stereotypes can lead people to interpret the same facial expressions or behaviors as more hostile or threatening when looking at a black person as compared to a white person and can affect how people perceive another person's speed and motion. Racial bias can also influence how accurately and quickly people identify the presence of weapons, making people more likely to shoot unarmed black people than unarmed white people in simulations, especially when they're new to shooting. However, police departments can play an integral role in reimagining public safety and shifting the narrative away from overly punitive or deadly measures that can lead to disinvestment in black communities. When departments understand the factors that increase risk of disparate policing, they can in turn take steps to address them. For example, setting and enforcing clear, unambiguous expectations of officer behavior is one important way for departments to promote equity. Creating clear norms of, expect of expected behavior can make officers more likely to treat people fairly. Officers working under more restricted use of force policies, for example, have been shown to use force less readily than officers working under less restrictive policies. Norms and rules Obviously, however, can only go so far, and effective accountability uh, mechanisms are a crucial pairing. For an example of the effect of accountability, we can turn to New York, where the New York Police Department requirement to document all stops appears to have limited unnecessary stops because it increased officers' perceptions that their decisions were under increased scrutiny and had a higher risk of sanction. Likewise, there are cultural changes that can be made to a department that can re reduce the risk of disparate behavior. Can strengthen procedural justice or the fairness within departments which may help improve officers' well-being and their endorsement of democratic forms of policing. Um, organiza organizational changes, such as shift-length policies and schedule changes, 
uh, can go a long way to reduce the risk of cognitive depletion of officers. And similarly, internal policies that promote de-escalation tactics can help reduce feelings of time pressure and threats during encounters with community members. There's a growing body of literature that suggests that diverse representation within police forces is associated with lower hate crime rates. Uh, police officers reflecting the communities they patrol create space for value alignment and can have positive implications on public safety. But centering black communities in these conversations related to public safety and past harm is one of the most crucial ways that can lead to empowerment and solution building and may also facilitate greater trust between law enforcement and those they seek to protect. But looking to the future, there is a clear uh, appreciation for the systems that have not worked um, and an appetite for public safety redesign writ large. Nationwide demonstrations against police violence have created unprecedented conversations around the allocation of public safety resources in American cities. As communities chart paths towards new models of public safety, many communities and government decision makers are asking questions about how to do so without risking violence, without aggravating racial disparities, or producing other unintended consequences that don't serve communities calling for change. Communities can and should feel empowered to assess what resources, police or otherwise, are required to fill their community's needs while identifying neighborhoods most in need of additional investment. In order to reduce police footprints in communities, inefficiencies in policing should be measured and mapped. Likewise, investments can be targeted to communities that have been overburdened by crime or policing. Policymakers can and should create stronger social safety nets in these neighborhoods by delivering more social services to residents, including cash subsidies, hospitals, mental health treatment centers, and substance abuse facilities. Policymakers can also invest in uh, and provide credit to local businesses such as grocery stores that enhance community well-being. Community input must be broadly sought throughout community surveys uh, to help quantify the exact kinds of services needed and not oversaturate communities with uh, services that they are not asking for and do not need. Policymakers should create spaces for conversations, physical conversations, uh, in-person conversations with community members to obtain their input on public safety services and policy. But in order to prevent violence and create safer communities with smaller law enforcement footprint, we can use and invest in community resources. Community-led violence intervention programs, for example, like Life Camp in New York and community-led crisis intervention teams like the CAHOOTS program started in Eugene, Oregon. CAHOOTS uh, stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, CAHOOTS um, in Eugene, Oregon, show promise of low-cost, community-centered, and nonviolent alternative responses. Similarly, mm -hmm. Community navigator model, like the one in Minneapolis, allows trained city employees instead of police to respond to victims of crime, of homelessness, or other concerns uh, where there is not an immediate threat of violence. Similar community-centered uh, response models exist around the country and the globe. Uh, and just as a last example, uh, there are targeted cash subsidies that can mitigate these risk factors. Basic income programs like the SEED program in Stockton, California, have shown a lot of promise in improving the uh, wellness, financial stability, employment, and mental health um, of the participants and may in turn help to reduce violence and crime in communities. Um, you know, only, only police departments that understand the factors that cause disparate outcomes can uh, help build equity. This is a necessary acknowledgement and it uh, provides a path, provides that a path towards healing is possible through a reimagined public safety system uh, that does not criminalize black people 
and create disparate outcomes, but instead centers community and takes a holistic and historically informed approach to public safety. Again, on a personal note, I want to thank the task force members and members of the public for your time today. I appreciate the depth and breadth of expert and personal testimony that this body has thought over such a prolonged period of time to truly address uh, meaningful and structural opportunities for healing in the country. And I look forward to further discussions and collaboration. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Markham, for your excellent expert testimony. Um, at this time, I would like to turn to the task force in the event that they have any comments or questions for the panelists. Mila, I just want to thank the, the panelists. I thought the testimony was excellent. Thank you so much. the task force. I'll just have a, a quick question for Dr. Roseberry and anyone else who would like to respond can. Can you speak a, about any potential uh, redress recommendations as it relates to you know, systemic changes in, in um, and guarantees of non-repetition? I'm sorry, I heard you say systemic changes. I didn't hear the last part of your question. Um, and then the, uh, com, uh, I guess you could say comparing systemic changes to the idea of guarantees of non-repetition. Yeah, I think your question was uh, systemic change in the area of non-representation as in indigent cases. Or not non-repetition, so essentially preventing future harms in terms of like your remarks, in terms of like anti-African-American um, bias and hate crime and stuff like that. Thank and you. not just the personal, but the institutional, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that the biggest way to prevent uh, repetition is to rein in the discretion that actors in the system have. Uh, I spoke a little bit about the qualified immunity that police officers have. Um, prosecutors, too, have a great deal of discretion uh, in their charging. And judges um, um, have some discretion as well in the sentences that they give. And this discretion is largely unchecked. Uh, we need to be able to have these servants of the people be held accountable. Uh, and so it, commensurate with this idea of checking discretion is transparency. Uh, we need to know what's going on inside our prisons. We need to know how prosecutors are making the decisions they make. We need to know about the disciplinary procedures or lack uh, for police officers. We need to know what's happening with police officers in our schools. Um, so, you know, throughout the entire system, since we are paying for it, we need to know what is happening. I will note that I have a good friend who's British who uh, was incensed to find out that until 2015, her tax dollars were paying for reparations to slave owners in Great Britain. Uh, had there been some transparency around that, I imagine she would have pushed back against that. And so we need more transparency and accountability in our system. I kind of would like to answer that question or follow up with what she said.
Any other task force members have any last comments? That, thank you so much to our esteemed panelists for providing personal expertise. I have my hand up. I'm sorry, I didn't see you. Member Rose, you're recognized. Thank you. Um, this, this question is perhaps primarily for um, Max Markham, but um, actually for any of the panelists. And, and first and foremost, thank you for that, the information that you shared. It's been very helpful. My question really goes to the issue of prevention and what role do you see prevention playing in, um, in, in addressing some of these examples of anti-black racism? And not only just prevention, but prevention that centers the community in the, in the efforts. For example, like in Los Angeles, you know, the use of grid, where you have community members who are central to, uh, you know, efforts at violence prevention. And then also perhaps the role of community organizers helping to bring the community to the table, um, to have input on prevention strategies as opposed to some academic coming up with something based on their theoretical understanding of what prevention is about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for that, for that question. Um, I think the answer is not, there is no uh, one size fits all answer, uh, right? And, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you uh, articulated the need to involve, I, I, I hope and think that my testimony touched on this as well, the need to involve community at every step of the way and not in a way that is, uh, you know, actors building solutions for communities and then giving them to the communities, but ensuring that communities can be architects of their own solutions, right? So there's a number to the, to the question of prevention. There are a number of short, medium, and long-term steps that should be taken on, you know, norms and rules internally, speaking specifically to policing norms and rules, uh, mechanisms for accountability. The norms and rules are intended to address prevention. The measures of, of accountability are um, in place should uh, prevention not succeed for there to be accountability, but also they, uh, they increase the likelihood that, uh, you know, use of force and bias uh, will be discouraged in the first place because of the existence of that, uh, of that accountability. So that's one piece of it, but I think that speaks more to your point of, you know, policymakers and academics setting standards and policies as opposed to allowing the actual community and, and, and supporting the community in dictating what it needs and what it wants. And that's where programs like, uh, you know, violence intervention uh, uh, programs like Life Camp, right, we have them all throughout New York City. Um, they exist in, in a number of states, um, you know, some that follow the, the cure violence model, um, hospital-based violence interventions where uh, people are able to, you know, there is violence that has occurred or there is violence that has historically occurred, but instead of turning directly to uh, law enforcement to uh, mitigate potential, you know, revenge killings or uh, additional violence, we turn to community members um, who have, you know, who are, who are commonly referred to as credible messengers, people who um, understand their community, understand the population that lives in that community, and can seek to mitigate those kinds of harms through uh, conversations, through programming, through mentorship, through job training. Um, those are the kinds of programs that are highly deserving of investment um, and have not been funded by policymakers historically because of the exact same comment that you made, uh, 
uh, chairwoman grill or a member grills that um, they're not necessarily based on evidence, right? In, this, in, in that same way that we are used to being able to call on. Um, so that's, that's something that needs to change um, and something that communities really uh, should feel empowered to participate in despite cycles and histories of, of uh, disinvestment. Thank you. And could I ask one other quick question? Um, the other issue is that, um, you know, we've been, we're, we're talking about anti-black bias, um, and oftentimes what that invokes in people's minds is black and white. But the truth of the matter is that we've got this white adjacent pecking order that every, all racial groups are trying to get as close to white adjacent as possible and as far away from black as possible, which means that everybody ends up drinking some of the Kool-Aid of white supremacy. Um, and in that regard, um, you know, one of the things that we're facing in the LA uh, county jails is, um, particularly in the women's jail, um, is the issue of anti-blackness directed at the black women incarcerated. And it's not coming from the white officers as much as it is from the Latinx officers or, you know, um, um, sheriff staff. Um, and so do you see any role um, for um, and any potential effectiveness for training around anti-blackness? Um, do you think that's going to move the needle or should we just stare, stay closer to policies? Um, I'd like to answer that. So, Darius Young, one, one of the things that I would say is this, right? First of all, you need to continue to have training, but I, but I would also say this. You can't out-train somebody how to be un, you know, unbiased or have these racist attitudes because we have to understand, right, this was laid out, you know, for people, white people, Latinx people, whoever you want to call it, years and years ago when they came out with these um, theories on black inferiority. So let's make that, and, 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 and so when you talk about training, you, you, you can't out-train a person's heart. So, so in that regard, you keep on doing the training, but the, but the other thing is to hold people accountable. And, 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 and if people are held accountable they have to be held accountable and 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 i do think that within this system of oppression people do not get held accountable especially in the criminal justice system they it gets passed along because some sometimes well most of the time when you're dealing with the state prisons and, and county jails it's kind of like operating behind the iron curtain because people get away with more than what they are held accountable for and what gets reported because people just aren't looking because it's a it's a thought well you know we're not violating anybody really because all they are are just like products shipments you know cargo or or whatever and so it it it, it takes somebody to have to stumble over something real atrocious in order for us to be investigations in order for people to truly truly be held accountable thank you Thank you so much to the panelists.
Um, thank you again for your time. Uh, we'll move on to our next agenda item, which is panel number three, agenda item 19, history of policing and war on drugs. So our speakers are close. Aaron Harvey, oh, excuse me, DeAndre Brooks, DeAndre Sorry, Aaron Harvey is unable to participate today. So we have DeAndre Brooks. So DeAndre Brooks, sorry. Um, could someone mute? Before I introduce the speakers, do we have Congresswoman Maxine Waters? Is she here? Okay, she was listed as to be determined, but I don't think she's here today. So we have DeAndre Brooks, because Aaron Harvey was unable to participate today. Brooks spent his young adult years incarcerated, but decided to take control of his future and manifesting a new life for himself. He is now pursuing a master's of public administration from San Diego, where he received his bachelor's degree. He is a member of San Diego Commission on Gang Prevention and Intervention and a Juvenile Justice Program Associate at the Children's Initiative in San Diego. We'll also hear from Genevieve Jones-Wright. Jones-Wright was a San Diego County, um, as worked as a San Diego County Public Defender from 2006 to 2019. She co-founded and served as the Executive Director of an impact litigation nonprofit, Community Advocates for Just and Moral Governance, which works to achieve racial and social justice and holds government accountable to all people, especially those who are marginalized. We'll also hear from Dave Mitchell. Dave Mitchell is a criminal defense attorney and a president of Vital Projects Fund a charitable foundation that seeks to end mass incarceration with a focus on curtailing cruel and excessive sentences, holding police and prosecutors accountable, ameliorating barbaric prison conditions, and reaffirming the humanity of incarcerated people. And then last, we'll hear from Charles Ramsey, who is a former Washington, D.C. Chief of Police, Philadelphia Police Commissioner, and co-chair of President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. So without further ado, DeAndre, we're going to begin your testimony. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is DeAndre Brooks, and I am honored to be here today. I wanted to speak to policing and the war on drugs and the effects and impacts it's had on myself and my community alike. And I just want to say that it created a lot of fatherless homes, single-parent homes, um, which caused individuals like myself and my friends to kind of gravitate toward the street life and to join gangs. Um, a lot of heavy presence of police in our communities and just stripping us of our male role models in general. Um, personally, after I, after I joined gangs, I got involved in some, some, some bad situations. But unfortunately, I went to prison for 10 years for a crime that I did not commit just being involved in and being around gang members. So I served 10 years in prison for something that I didn't do and a crime I didn't commit, and I've come home to try to get my life on track and still have to interact with law enforcement and be treated as less than. Um, traffic stops on a regular basis for failure to stop at stop signs, things like that that never occurred. Um, purchasing brand new cars and just being seen driving brand new cars and the police just feel like they have the ability to pull you over and question you. 
And then once I start speaking, they, they want to let me go and no charges are ever filed. But just the fact that you have to go go through that in your communities and that heavy presence is there, it makes the community not like law enforcement. And it kind of just continues to, to put the community in a position to where they feel as if we're just not supported all the way around. And I definitely appreciate you guys for having this panel and session on these issues. I've been listening to a lot of the data that's come through. I just wanted to kind of like put a real life experience and connect that with all the data and the information that has been here today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your testimony and thank you thank for you. being able to present on such short notice. So we'll now turn to, thank you. Uh, thank you. We'll now turn to Ms. Genevieve Jones-Wright. Welcome, and you can begin your testimony, expert testimony, when you're ready, Ms. Jones-Wright. Thank you. I am hoping that because my dear friend DeAndre Brooks did not take advantage of his allotted time, that I may be seated some of this time. I do not want to talk too fast, but I do have lots to say, and I wasn't made aware that we were going to be reduced down to 10 minutes. So I'm going to try to do the best that I can do and stay within the confines of time. But thank you. Uh, my name is Genevieve Jones-Wright, and I really want to thank you for this opportunity to present testimony on the history of policing in San Diego. As you all well know, we cannot divorce our current policing systems or any system in this country, for that matter, from their racist roots in white supremacy. Slavery existed in this country before it was a country, and the effects of slavery still persist in today's society. The biased policing we see in our communities is firmly rooted in the systematic mistreatment and dehumanization of black people. It is easy to directly correlate what we see in our prisons and our jails as far as numbers with what happens in our courts as judges sentence people to prison and jail. What I have seen in my law practice as a criminal defense and civil rights attorney, however, is how policing directly impacts what we see happen in our courtroom. When a person has more contact with law enforcement because they live in an over-policed neighborhood or because their skin is seen as a threat to police officers or as probable cause, they will have more involvement with the criminal court system. As we have discussed earlier through earlier testimonies, after the Civil War, slave patrols were used to round up newly freed men and women, their violations, walking around black and free. And unfortunately, this violation still results in a disproportionate rate in which African Americans engage in the criminal legal system. In the overview of my testimony, I wrote that California's vagrancy and loitering laws were spawns of the Black Codes and the Jim Crow laws that were prominent in Southern states. This by no means was meant to infer that these racist laws never made their way to California. They most certainly did. Segregation was firmly established in California in 1870. And what's not commonly known is that the California Supreme Court upheld a law mandating school segregation, holding that the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution did not bar segregation 20 years before the United States Supreme Court adopted this rationale in its infamous 
Plessy versus Ferguson decision. So although California entered the Union as a free state in 1850, prohibiting slavery in our Constitution, it enacted its own Jim Crow laws between 1850 and 1947. The criminalization of societal issues like homelessness are consistent with the early days of policing where vagrancy and unemployment were policed formally through black code that we also heard about earlier that severely restricted the freedom of black people living in the South. The defining feature of black codes was broad vagrancy laws, which allowed local authorities to arrest freed people for minor infractions and commit them to involuntary labor. It is worth noting that homelessness is heavily criminalized in San Diego County, and that black people make up 22% of people experiencing homelessness, despite only being 6% of the population. And that as Voice of San Diego reported in 2020, African Americans were disproportionately impacted by the enforcement of rules relating to the COVID-19 pandemic, despite the overall number of arrests and tickets in San Diego falling dramatically after public health officials ordered people to stay home. A Voice of San Diego analysis of San Diego Police Department crime data found that one out of every four violations of various emergency orders went to a black person. They went further and explained that it wasn't just in the category of public health where black San Diegans were overrepresented. Indeed, the very history of California starts with anti-blackness. California's first governor, Peter Burnett, in his first State of the State address remarked that after much reflection, he determined that keeping black people out of California altogether would be the best policy. California's first governor pushed for a complete ban of black people from entering the state as one of the first items of business for the newly formed state, and so did some of the men who wrote California's constitution. It is with this backdrop of history that I offer my testimony on the history of policing in San Diego this afternoon. I will lift up the stories of three valiant black men I believe are critical to understanding how policing in San Diego is directly tied to the need for white people and particularly law enforcement actors to maintain and exert control over black bodies. I hope to help this important task force understand how policing practices, norms, cultures, and their detrimental effects, all rooted in white supremacy, continue to affect black communities today, and why it is important to dismantle our criminal legal and policing institutions as they now exist. When the San Diego Police Department was established in 1889, one of the prerequisites for being a police officer was being a white male. It's no wonder that when the first black officers joined SDPD, they were forbidden by their superiors to arrest lawbreakers if they were white. Now think about that. And how could a black officer testify against a white offender when California's Jim Crow laws did not allow non-whites to testify against white people in a court of law? This brings me to the story of the grandfather of one of my oldest friends from childhood. Detective Johnny Williams joined the San Diego Police Department in 1952 as a quote-unquote beat cop. 
He was one of the earliest African-American police detectives in San Diego, and he served with distinction 26 years until 1978. During his tenure, he was known for his exceptional investigative and interrogation abilities, notably carried out with fairness and determination to do the right thing. His skills were so remarkable that some of his interrogations were used as models statewide in recruit training. As outstanding as he was, he was assigned to work only with other African-American officers and only in cases that involved African-Americans for many years on the force. And as a matter of policy, he was expressly prohibited from arresting white offenders. Being the honorable man he was, he took his oath seriously, and Detective Williams did not comply with that prohibition. These were the stories that he told his children and grandchildren, and these stories of discriminatory practices within SDPD were later confirmed in an interview published in 1996 through the words of Detective William Ritchie, who joined the San Diego Police Department in 1935 before Detective Williams. I share with you about Detective Williams to illustrate how profoundly policing is rooted in white supremacy. If a black officer was not worthy enough to confront or arrest a white man who was breaking the law, how will a black man or woman be seen as worthy of respect and human dignity when encountered by a white cop on his beat? What prevents the actors within police institutions from treating every black person they see as a criminal or as a threat or a gang member who needs to be neutralized? Which brings me to the story of Sagan Penn. On May 31st, 1985, Sagan Penn, a 23-year-old black man, was driving his car in the Encanto neighborhood of Southeast San Diego, where I live, when he and his passengers were racially profiled as gang members by two San Diego police officers, Donovan Jacobs and Tom Riggs, despite none of them being involved in gangs or having a history of doing so. Upon being stopped, Penn, a beloved member of the community and a prolific martial artist, was met with what was intended to be offensive and provocative gang language before he was asked for his ID. What ensued was a beat down by Riggs and Jacobs, who began to kick, punch, and beat Penn with a baton. Despite Penn being on the ground with an officer on top of him holding him down and him yelling, I give up, you've got me now, the officers continued to beat him. Penn defended himself as he had every right to do, managed to block some of the officer's blows, and gained possession of Jacob's revolver, killing Jacob and injuring Riggs and their ride-along passenger. Penn was also wounded during this episode of gratuitous police violence. Notably, a fellow officer testified in support of Penn and testified that Officer Jacobs was a quote-unquote racist hothead. The San Diego Police Department and its chief never ones to engage in self-reflection in any meaningful way, criticized the DA for not seeking the death penalty and denied any wrongdoing on the part of the officer. After two trials, Penn was acquitted of the murder, attempted murder, and manslaughter charges. Not only was the black community outraged about the police abuse that unfolded during Penn's traffic stop, but so was the judge who presided over the trial. Law enforcement's flagrant abuse of Penn that night was not unique to Penn's situation. It was emblematic of the day-to-day -day interactions between members of San Diego's law enforcement and the residents of southeastern part of San Diego, which houses the greatest concentration of black residents in the city of San Diego to this day, 
as DeAndre Brooks just spoke about. This particular incident of police violence and abuse, however, was a catalyzing force that brought about San Diego's first review board on police practices, which was supposed to be a check on police misconduct. This type of police abuse is not the only mistreatment Black San Diegans were and are still subjected to. African Americans in San Diego are victims of over-policing and arbitrary and selective enforcement of our laws, which stem from bias in policing, which is rooted in white supremacy. Emblematic of the harassment that Black San Diegans are subjected to is the U.S. Supreme Court case Colander versus Lawson. Edward Lawson was detained or arrested on about 15 occasions between March 1975 and January 1977 pursuant to California Penal Code Section 647E. At the time, this penal code section prohibited persons from loitering or wandering upon the streets or from place to place without apparent reason or business and refusing to identify themselves to account for their presence when requested by a peace officer to do so if the surrounding circumstances are such as to indicate to a reasonable man that the public safety demands such identification. I know, that was a lot. From the trial transcript, we learned that the stops of Mr. Lawson were arbitrary in nature. On the first occasion, Mr. Lawson, who was new to San Diego, was simply walking home from a party on what he called a beautiful San Diego day and was arrested for violating Penal Code Section 647E. And as he recalls, as he got out of jail for this first offense, he was cited again. It's important to note that Lawson had never been stopped by police for any reason apart from his 15 or so detentions under this law. In his own words, he would, quote unquote, just be going to the curb or leaving his residence while living in La Jolla when detained or arrested. And it shouldn't be lost on us that La Jolla is an affluent area known for its history of redlining and restrictive covenants keeping black people out. Lawson found during conversations with his friends that these citations were commonplace for young black people. He decided to fight his citations on constitutional grounds. No one would take Lawson's case, so he fought the citations representing himself all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and won. The named defendant in Collender versus Lawson was Bill Collender, who was the chief of police of the San Diego Police Department at that time and who later became San Diego County's sheriff. Through the form, the San Diego Police Department and its chief could not accept an adverse ruling and appealed the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, while striking down this statute really set an important precedent, the underlying facts that brought about this case in the first place are crucially important and deserve attention. So let's go back to the Black Codes and Jim Crow Law. This California statute was being arbitrarily enforced against Black people as a means by which law enforcement could and did monitor and control the actions of Black people in San Diego. And this was not lost on Mr. Edward Lawson, who likened his experience and the experience of other people like him who were being harassed by law enforcement by way of this statute to the past laws in South Africa during apartheid. The past laws of 1952 required black South Africans over the age of 16 to carry a passbook everywhere and at all times. The past laws was a system used to control the movement of black, Indian, and colored people in South Africa. 
I share these stories because each of these men stood up and fought against the system that was determined to subjugate them and in some cases commit violence against them and change some aspects of policing in standing up. But while honoring their acts of bravery and courage and the honoring of their own manhood and humanity, one must not gloss over the traumatic experiences each man had to endure. Sagan Penn paid the ultimate price. In his case, he was never able to have peace. Despite his acquittals, he was a constant target of the San Diego District Attorney's Office and local police agencies. And for the next 17 years of his life, Sagan Penn endured their constant harassment and struggle with mental health and other issues as a result of the traumatic experience on the night of May 31st, 1985. Sagan would tell his friends and family that he couldn't have a life as a result of that fateful night. Sagan Penn was liberated from the constant harassment in this life on July 4th, 2002. Finally, in honoring their stories, we must also acknowledge not only that white supremacy underpins our policing institutions and systems, but also the need to rid ourselves of it. Although the data is clear that African Americans are policed differently in San Diego, the city attorney nor any of her representatives made any mention that San Diego's outdated seditious language laws were selectively enforced in a discriminating way against African Americans when they decided to repeal it back in 2020. And even after commissioning their own reports that confirmed that black drivers are stopped and searched disproportionately when compared to their white counterparts, both the San Diego police and sheriff departments have doubled down on their arguments that these quote unquote disparities don't equate to bias or discriminatory policing. We know that given the history of policing in this country and in this state, we cannot separate the fruits we see from the root of white supremacy and institutionalized racism. For this reason, I ask that this body consider proposals that will result in a complete reimagining of our criminal legal and policing systems and address collective trauma. I don't believe that we have two justice systems. I don't believe that this country is home to any justice systems. I also don't believe that our criminal legal system is broken. It is working the way it was intended. That being said, I thank this task force again for allowing me the opportunity to share a few thoughts and, of course, for undertaking this great work. Thank you so much, Ms. Jones-Wright, for that amazing expert testimony. Really appreciate you. So we'll now turn to uh, Dave Mitchell for his expert testimony. And Dave Mitchell, you may begin when you're ready. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is David Menchel. Uh, as Ms. Moore uh, mentioned, I'm a criminal defense attorney and president of Vital Projects Fund, a charitable foundation that gives grants to organizations that seek to end mass incarceration. To my mind, one of the clearest examples of reparations being implemented in recent years has been the social equity provisions enacted in a number of American states in the wake of marijuana legalization. While these provisions differ from place to place, they include things like, one, the expungement of old marijuana convictions, two, special licensing regimes that provide economic opportunities to those previously convicted of marijuana offenses, and three, public investment in communities that were disproportionately impacted by marijuana criminalization. 
These social equity provisions are worth examining because I think they might provide a useful model for reparations for individuals and communities that have been unjustly criminalized and oversentenced in other contexts. Generally speaking, when we make changes to the criminal law, we don't provide reparations to those previously convicted and sentenced under the prior legal regime. I think the fact that many jurisdictions have chosen to provide reparations in the wake of marijuana legalization is in part because we have an intuition that our prior marijuana laws were not merely imperfect, deficient, or warranting improvement, but rather because the laws were immoral, unjust, and enforced in a racially disparate manner. In other words, I think these reparation provisions reflect the fact that our culture has had a moral awakening with regard to marijuana criminalization, an awakening perhaps not unlike the moral awakenings that accompanied the abolition of slavery and the end of Jim Crow. And we have a sense that that awakening creates an accompanying moral imperative, provide reparations to those who are victimized. I would further submit that if we look carefully at some of the other criminal justice reforms California has made in the past decade, there are other changes that might fall into this category, where we might say that the reforms reflect not merely an effort to fix deficient laws, but rather a deeper moral judgment that the prior laws were cruel, unjust, and racist. And like with marijuana, we should consider reparations to individuals and communities unfairly impacted by those laws. So what are some of the reforms that may fall into this category? Here are a few worth considering. Number one, Proposition 36. In 2012, by a vote of 69% to 31%, Californians enacted Proposition 36 that amended California's draconian three strikes law. While other states had enacted these kinds of habitual offender laws during the 1990s, California's three strikes law was one of the broadest and harshest in the nation, providing for decades-long mandatory minimum sentences for a third strike offense, even when that offense was nonviolent and exceedingly minor. Individuals convicted of petty thefts, like stealing a slice of pizza, a pair of white tube socks, or a pair of baby shoes, ended up with exorbitant decades-long sentences. Similarly, individuals convicted of possession of a single dose of heroin ended up with life sentences. In some instances, like a famous case where a man received a 50-year mandatory minimum for stealing five videotapes of children's movies, the third strike sentence for shoplifting was more than six times longer than the sentence that same individual would have received for rape. It is worth noting that California's three strikes law enacted amidst a media-generated hysteria in the wake of the kidnapping and murder of 12-year-old Polly Class has since been repudiated by Class's own sisters. They now call California's three strikes law a, quote, pervasive injustice. They recently told Elle magazine, quote, it's difficult to describe how strange it is to be connected to this legacy of mass incarceration and then to carry the shame and the pain of that legacy. It's been heavy for us for a really long time. In short, even the people in whose name California passed its three strikes law have come to see it not just as a misguided policy, but as unjust and shameful. Number two, SB 1010. In 2014, California enacted Senate Bill 1010, which eliminated the state's crack cocaine disparity. 
Prior to the reform, California provided harsher punishments for the sale of crack cocaine than powder cocaine, and it made it harder for those convicted of crack offenses to qualify for probation. Similarly, a far smaller amount of crack cocaine than powder cocaine triggered the forfeiture of property used in drug-related commerce. It is now widely acknowledged that there is, quote, no scientific basis, close quote, for treating crack and powder cocaine differently. Indeed, California's 2014 reform law contained a legislative finding that crack and powder cocaine are, quote, two different forms of the same drug. The prior law produced dramatic racial disparities. 77% of those in prison for crack offenses were black, whereas less than 2% were white. Number three. SB 1437. In 2018, California enacted Senate Bill 1437, which amended the archaic felony murder rule and the natural, probable, natural and probable consequences doctrine, dramatically narrowing the circumstances in which people who neither kill nor intend to kill can be convicted of murder as though they were the actual killer. The reform bill recognized the inherent unfairness of pre-existing law and provided retroactive relief to those who had been convicted prior to the reform's enactment. Prior to the reform law, merely agreeing to participate in certain felonies made one strictly liable for any death that occurred. Thus, a person could be charged with first or second degree murder, even for homicides that one did not commit, did not intend, and did not foresee, and even those about which one had no knowledge. So people like Nico Wilson could be prosecuted for first-degree murder in connection with the deaths of a couple during a robbery in the Central Valley, even though prosecutors conceded that Wilson had merely helped to plan the robbery and was not physically present when the robbery or the deaths occurred. In short, prior to the reforms, California law allowed people who were peripheral to felonies, lookouts, getaway drivers, and other minor participants to be prosecuted as though they were the trigger man in an intentional first-degree murder. This law frequently ensnared people like women and youth who played a small role in the crimes of others. Indeed, 72% of the women serving a life sentence for homicide in California did not actually commit a homicide. England and other Commonwealth countries around the world that previously employed the felony murder rule have long since narrowed or abandoned it because it's archaic and produces unjust results. And indeed, the California Supreme Court itself has called the felony murder rule, quote, barbaric. In short, there is significant evidence that California's SB 1437 did not merely reform an imperfect law, but sought to end a pervasive injustice. Number four, SB 394. In 2017, California ended JLWAP sentences, that is, life without the possibility of parole sentences for juveniles. Prior to its enactment, California had more than 300 children serving such sentences, and California was one of just nine states that accounted for more than 80% of JLWAP sentences nationwide. Of the more than 3,000 counties in America, Los Angeles County, was the second most prolific user of such sentences. JLWAP sentences first became common during the 1990s at the height of what has now become known as the juvenile super predator panic. The panic was initially fueled by Princeton professor John DeLulio, who 
then seized on by politicians in the media who opined that a new generation of youth that had, quote, no respect for human life was going to drive a crime wave unprecedented in U.S. history. In the coming years, juvenile crime didn't rise. In fact, it plummeted. For his part, DeLulio has since admitted he was wrong, expressed remorse, and joined a brief to the U.S. Supreme Court repudiating his own work. As many have subsequently noted, the juvenile super predator panic specifically tapped into and amplified racial stereotypes, suggesting black children, suggesting black children were predatory and prone to criminality. And in fact, among children arrested for homicide, black kids were twice as likely to be sentenced to JLWAP as white kids. In California, black youth were 18 times more likely to receive such a sentence than white youth. As the U.S. Supreme Court has pointed out, the differences between adult and adolescent brains make adolescents less morally culpable than adults and render adolescents more capable of rehabilitation, making the irrevocability of a JLWAP sentence inappropriate. Indeed, brain science shows that adolescents are more susceptible to impulsivity, risk-taking behavior, and peer pressure and less likely to weigh the consequences of their actions than adults because their brains are still developing. In California, more than half of the children who received the sentence did so as part of a crime with an adult, and in many cases, the child played a peripheral role. For these reasons, in recent years, more than 30 U.S. states have abandoned the practice of sentencing children to JLWAP in law and in practice, and the U.S. remains the only nation in the world that allows JLWAP at all. In short, California's SB 394 that eliminated such sentences might reasonably be seen as a moral awakening, not merely a practical change in the law. In conclusion, the four changes to the law that I've discussed are merely illustrative of a broader point, that as we look at the era of mass incarceration and begin to make reforms to the criminal law, some portion of these reforms will reflect an intuition that the laws being changed were not merely deficient or warranting improvement, but were barbaric immoral and unjust. And when a law falls into that second category, when we have a moral awakening, we have a moral responsibility to repair the harm we've done through reparation, like giving special economic benefits to people who were victimized and special economic investments into communities that suffer disproportionate enforcement. Thank you. Excellent expert testimony. Our last panelist for this particular panel is Charles Ramsey. So without further ado, Mr. Ramsey, you may begin your expert testimony. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much and good afternoon. Uh, it is still afternoon in California. I'm in Philadelphia, so a little different time zone. But um, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to participate on this panel. I'll try to keep my comments as brief as I can to allow for Time for questions. Uh, having served on a commission, I know what it's like when you have the panel testimony and you're, you're anxious to ask a question or two and you have to kind of wait till the end. So I'll do the best I can in trying to keep it short. Uh, my name is Chuck Ramsey. Uh, my background is in policing. Uh, I started my policing career. I'm a native Chicagoan. I began my policing career in Chicago in 1968 as a police cadet. I spent 30 years as a member of the Chicago Police Department. I left in 1998 to become police chief in Washington, D.C., where I served for nearly nine years, retired very briefly, and then uh, took on Philadelphia, where I served as police commissioner for uh, eight years. 
Uh, it was mentioned uh, early on during the introductions that in 2015, I had the honor of serving as co-chair of President Obama's task force on 21st century policing, which came about in the aftermath of uh, Ferguson, Missouri, uh, Michael Brown and Eric Gardner in New York, President Obama at the time, wanted to have a um, uh, in-depth review of uh, policing with solid concrete recommendations. Uh, and we did produce a document uh, with um, uh, some 92 action steps, 61 uh, recommendations, which many departments are using to this day. But to focus on narcotics, um, uh, if, if, if I may, uh, drugs, uh, I do have a background in drug enforcement. Uh, when I served in the Chicago Police Department, uh, as a sergeant, I was a member of the narcotics section from roughly 1978 to 1984. Uh, so about six years I served in that capacity. I returned to that unit and was reassigned there in 1991 or so uh, as the commander of Organized Crime Division Narcotics Section. <clears throat> so most of my street experience with narcotics uh, comes from my time in the Chicago Police Department, although obviously Philadelphia and D.C. had more than a share of issues uh, surrounding uh, crime. So this so-called war on drugs, <clears throat> I was one of the people that actually was assigned to narcotics during that period of time. Obviously, the so-called war failed. It failed on a lot of different levels. Uh, but the, and primarily, in my opinion, it failed uh, because there was nothing really provided for treatment and prevention. Everything was geared toward enforcement. And that was pretty much the mandate, you know, get the drugs off the street. When crack cocaine hit in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s in Chicago, uh, there was a great deal of violence that was associated with open air drug trafficking. And so that just amped things up a bit in terms of uh, enforcement activity, but again, um, there was very little done in the area of treatment or prevention. Um, I also think that this whole, uh, the legislation that was passed, and again, I'm not familiar with California law. I can only address laws in the cities where I worked. But that disparity in crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine, at the time they did it, um, many of us in narcotics didn't understand why. I mean, it's all cocaine. It's just a different form of cocaine. We didn't understand the need to pass that kind of legislation, but it was passed, and it did lead to a disproportionate number and lengthy incarceration of primarily people of color. So, again, there were a lot of things that went wrong. There's absolutely no question about that uh, during that period of time. Um, and fortunately, I think uh, there are some things that are being done to try at least to uh, correct some of that. Um, when I served as uh, co-chair, were plotting on the day of inauguration to make Mr. Obama one-term president. So need I say more, that every time we as blacks prove that we can produce and we can excel, and then it is brutal, reactionary, force turn loose in this nation so that our challenge is continue to make them out of a lot. 
and move forward even with this task force and really know the spirit of what we've heard this day about law enforcement and criminal justice. It was all about stopping our progress and we denied us equality of opportunity to rationalize or justify their evil deeds. Finally, regarding our venue, our next meeting, at Third Baptist, we do have uh, the means to put in operation virtual meeting. And I think to be consistent and be fair, my suggestion would be that we'll give people the opportunity to present through live stream. And this would be a historic day, too, on the 13th in particular, because it was on April the 13th, 1858, that unfortunate blacks in San Francisco felt so unwelcome, so disenfranchised, so ostracized, that they met at First AME Zion Church. The Baker family, who were abolitionists, and the Broderick's, who were abolitionists, and Star King of First Unitarian Church, together to hear the invitation from Governor Douglas of, of Victoria, British Columbia, Victoria Island, the place that he invited blacks to come to. But he said, Get aboard the ship, the Commodore. Come up to Canada, and they won't respect you in San Francisco. They won't give you justice there. And those blacks established their community. 1858. And then Dr. W.B. Du Bois celebrated his 90th birthday at Third Baptist and spoke to a capacity audience. Not all black, well integrated. We had many allies then too. And he spoke about the evils of capitalism and how if we did not change our trajectory and our course, our nation, the Democratic Republic, be in trouble. And he predicted that before he left this nation and settle in Accra, Ghana, West Africa. So we will have all things in order for you. And uh, we know how to be excellent host and host at the historic Third Baptist Church. Thank you so much, Vice Chair Brown, and thank you for hosting what will be the first in-person uh, task force meeting for this historic effort. Um, very timely, and thank you for educating us about the importance of the date. So I guess we'll go back to Attorney Brown. 
so that he can maybe address um, Senator Bradford's question, but then also after you address that question, can you inform us if the task force will be live streamed so that like for, for folks who are just the public, right, who aren't testifying in any way, like would they be able to watch it like they've been doing? Right. So I did want to clarify that as being a different issue from the uh, access to witnesses who might be in remote locations. We will continue to live stream the meeting so that the public can participate and uh, observe the meetings uh, uh, through uh, online means. Uh, that is different than having the Blue Jeans platform set up, which we have been operating under, where the entire meeting has been remote. That that um, process is no longer going to be in effect due to the expiration of the governor's executive order. Um, to Senator Bradford's point, um, in terms of taking testimony uh, uh, remotely as the legislature has been doing, uh, one of the things that we will look into, because I believe that the legislature may operate under different rules than we would, that we do as an advisory board, uh, but we will also look into the capabilities that may be um, available to us uh, to see about a uh, an operator-assisted line, uh, which would be different from just having a uh, conference call line. It would have to be managed. We have to look into the resources and the availability and capabilities of whether we can do that. But we certainly will explore it um, and we'll look into it. Obviously, the objective is to be over-inclusive uh, in terms of participation, uh, and we will do everything that we can within the confines of the rules and the technological capabilities to do that. Um, and we will advise uh, the task force accordingly. I have another clarifying question. So in terms of public comment, you know, we've been having it for an hour in the beginning of our agenda. So in order to make public comment as it stands, you have to be there in person, um, right or no? So that, again, is part of the issue that we're exploring. With the executive order that's currently in place, uh, public comment has been allowed uh, by virtual means, whether it's by teleconference or over some of these online platforms where public meetings are being uh, held. Uh, so we have to examine what the expiration of that order implies for the access uh, to continue to do public comments virtually by telephonic means. Um, again, I need to look at whether the order is restrictive in the sense that it would restrict us from doing so or whether it's permissive in the sense that notwithstanding the expiration of the order, uh, bodies can make the decision to continue uh, to take uh, comments in that manner. And so again, this is the first time that we'll be meeting outside of these orders, which expire on the 31st of March. Um, and so we will look into all options um, and, and provide that uh, back to the task force. Senator Rafford, did you have any comments? I, I was saying the executive order shouldn't supersede the fact that providing a telecom, not in our phone line where folks can still provide their testimony. I mean, we've done it when I was on local elected official, we've done it in the legislature and done it on various other, you know, organizations I've been part of. 
I think public engagement is critical, and I think uh, Vice Chair Brown says they have the means and the facilities to help make that happen. So I think we should take advantage of that. And, and, and I certainly don't disagree with Senator Bradford. I just don't want to misspeak, uh, currently not having fully uh, looked into the issue, but once I can uh, make sure that everything is confirmed, I'll again report um, all of the available options. Okay. So now that we have that kind of figured out, I am going to share my screen again for the agenda. Um, yeah, I'm going to share my screen. Also to ask if any task force members, and it's okay if not today because it's been a very long day, but if task force members have any potential witness witnesses they have in mind for these particular panels in the event that we adopt this agenda, um, to make that known. So again, the first day is around educational disp education disparities in institutions, where we're going to have a series of panels, pre-K to 12th grade, um, then college to professional education, and then school to prison pipeline, with some updates around community engagement and the subpoena power. And then on April 14th, uh, we're going to have a final discussion and vote on report one. Um, and then hearing from um, the communications firms about potential co uh, communication strategies and then continuing, continuing the conversation around uh, the scope of work for the economic consultant and then some other business in terms of future, future meetings. So I think before I you know, entertain a motion to adopt this agenda, I, I wanted to go back and talk a bit about the community engagement plan because you know I'm, I made my concerns kind of known um, we received a few emails as well uh, making their concerns known and then also there's some public comment about the communications firms in the bunch center um, and their lack of deliverables and so just wanted to have an open conversation amongst all of us as a task force um, I, I'll make my kind of position clear. I think that we should think about revisiting the contract between the, the DOJ and the Bunch Center and by virtue of the communication firms. Um, and so what that revisiting could look like, I think, is, you know, yesterday we made national news with this effort, and so there's a lot of interest, I think, now. Um, and so for the April meeting, I was even thinking, we allow for the center and the communications firms to present, you know, what what they have in mind, despite kind of their lack of, you know, achieving deliverables thus far. But then we also, I think this is what Vice Chair Brown was alluding to in the very beginning of this process, between now and the next meeting, we publicize openly the opportunity for other people and other entities or communications firms to present to us their ideas on how to educate the California public on our findings um, and to also present to us their ideas for communication strategy. And then we can decide amongst ourselves in that April meeting 
do we continue with the contract with the Bunt Center and the two communication firms that we've already recruited and listed, or do we decide to go with someone else or some other entity? You know, that's something that I'm proposing, but, you know, obviously to, <laughs> I'm not the dictator of the task force. I want, you know, us to have a conversation about it. And if most task force members just think, you know, let's just stick with who we have, then that's fine too. But I just wanted to open that discussion and see if anyone um, had any thoughts on that. Uh, member, uh, Senator Bradford, you're recognized. Um, well, without first seeing the contract, I'm unaware where they've fallen short or what's lacking there. But I do agree our outreach has to be better than what it's been. Um, I'm bombarded every time I go home in the streets about Fast Force and what are you guys doing. And, and I was telling people all last weekend, I said, hey, we're meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday online. Make sure you go to my office, call my office. We'll get you the link so you can watch it and you can monitor it. People are not being notified of what it is that we're doing. We had a public relations firm. I used to be in marketing, you know, and, and I have plenty of friends who are in marketing, and this is an easy sale, folks. People want to know what we're doing, and I'm encountered all the time in the community, and they they're not being contacted. So, like I said, I don't know what the contract speaks to, but I think we can improve. So I'm going to come from that standpoint that I think we're lacking in real public relations and promoting that which we're doing on this task force and getting even broader community engagement and input as well. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you, Senator Bradford. Uh, Madam, Madam, Madam Chair. Vice Chair Brown, you're recognized. Thank you. Members of the task force, Madam Chair, from where I sit and look, the communications team also know from Jump Street that our black media, that black associations of publishers and newspaper owners to be contacted. Our black pop stations to be contacted. And definitely communication system of the black community. The black church is a no brainer. This communication should not have been compromised. So we we in the driver's seat, we have to tell them what we want to be done and without delay. And if they can't fulfill it, we need to have positive come to Jesus session with them and, and look at making a change. So having said Sorry. that, I would make a motion that we would, uh, if, we, if, if it's in order now, that we approve um, the agenda for the next meeting. And then, and then we will go to have a discussion on on this communication contract. Okay. I I'll second that motion for the agenda, if it's 
appropriate right at this point. Okay, so it has been properly moved and seconded to adopt the draft April agenda. Is there any discussion on the matter? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. So, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Member, thank you. Which so I, I agree with both uh, Mr. Bradford and, and Reverend Brown that we need to give instructions exactly what we want to the communication firm. Look at and give everybody here an opportunity to make sure um, we gave them proper instructions from the from the gate. And if we need to add to it, um, then we need to we need to do that. Again, the second part of that is, as as uh, Reverend Brown said, if they're not fulfilling what we want in a relatively short period of time, they can't do that. Communicate with the black media, the churches, the, the black organizations that we know, then we know we need to make a change, that they, they may not have the capacity or the ability to do it. Um, so we, we, we need to come together, reaffirm what we want, give them a timeline to get it done. And if they don't, then we as a group then need to seriously um, move on. But the good part about that is we'll know what we want exactly what was missing uh, that they didn't do so that whenever we interview whomever we interview whether it's a pr firm or a communication firm we'll know exactly what outcomes we want and uh so there's no confusion with that so i'll second the motion if there wasn't one with mr bradford there was a second already and we're in the discussion period so member Rosie recognized so i'm I'm really, I'm, I don't know what the word is I'm actually looking for, Chair Moore, but your process is confusing to me. If your intent was really to try to get clarity on and to get more information about what the communication firms were doing, why could you not reach out to me to the bunch center, to the communications firms. You were in a meeting just last week um, with attorney Mary Lee, who organizes and convenes actually the meetings of the anchor orgs. I asked her, you didn't raise any concerns. And so then you bring it out in a public forum. You cast a, a, a potentially negative light on the communications firms and the Bunch Center. And that just feels very unfair. So I just wanted to say from a process perspective, this is very, very troubling to me, how you are operating. Um, and again, we already have agendized that the communications firms are going to present in the April meeting. We decided that in February. And we're good. And so why now all of the extra concern, short of, yes, there, there's going to be, there has been, and we knew there was going to be greater visibility to what's happening uh, in this task force, 
But again, your process to me feels very odd and, and it makes me wonder what is the real intent here. Um, Madam Chair, Madam Chair. Just, just Madam Chair, I've had my hand up. I, I'm happy to let Vice Chair go, but I just want to let you know what I have something to oh, say. Sorry, I didn't see that. Okay, so after Madam Vice Chair, Chair Brown, um, yes, go ahead. Madam, Madam Chair, everybody, from where I said again, there's no personal attack on that one. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. It is a fact that around this state, for our last two meetings in particular that I know about, there has not been optimum communication. And, and that shouldn't have taken a whole lot of time. All they needed to do was to contact these agencies that I mentioned. But there was no contact. And I can speak right at home there in San Francisco. The Sun reporter and the Post had not heard from any communications continent representing this task force regarding our scheduled meetings and the pertinent information about what was going on. And we're, that's, so that's fact. All we need to do is realize that one room is never improved. That's, I mean, Phil, that's room for improvement. But still, if it's not heard what we are sharing here, then we have to do the right thing for the good of the cause. But we can give them opportunity, but, but they need to prove themselves going forward. Thank you, Vice Chair Brown. Member Montgomery Stutz. Uh, thank you, Chair Moore. So I just wanted to uh, say a couple of things about the communications item in plan. I do, I'm fine with the agenda, so, um, but the, um, and I also want to hear um, from the two firms next, next month, so I think that's appropriate. But in our last meeting, um, Toward the end, I believe, um, we discussed kind of what a general protocol would be when we get certain media requests and the like. And so we all, you know, are going to represent ourselves at some point, but we also had a discussion about um, at least getting in touch with um, one of the firms as we receive certain inquiries if we are representing the task force. So my staff did that, and it's been 30 days, and we hadn't heard anything. And so I think that that may have been something that wasn't communicated to the firm, but that is also just another area where um, myself, I've experienced not, not any communication um, it, with regard to our last conversation in the last meeting. I also, um, months ago when this came up, I asked to see a contract and was directed to a state website. So at this time, I would like to just request that I um, can see that contract because the contract generally has a scope of work. And so, yes, if we're not communicating things we want, that's understandable coming um, as a task force, we need to do that. But there are also things that have already been contracted out. And so I would just like to see before the next meeting 
um, to compare that with what the firm presents to us because those are two different things. We can ask for additional services, but there's all there's already a scope of work. Well, there should be um, if there's a contract. So I just wanted to to put those those things on the record and certainly not to disparage anyone. I'm everyone. The Bunch Center has a wonderful reputation. Sure, the firms are great, but just with respect to this, um, I haven't received what I needed and and what we've discussed as task force members already. Um, so I'm looking forward to that conversation next month. Thank you. Madam Chair, can I address uh, what Member Montgomery Stipp uh, requested just briefly? Yes. Sorry that my microphone. Uh, go ahead, Attorney. No, no problem. Uh, Member Montgomery Stepp, uh, the contract, you were probably directed to the website because it's a public document, but we can make it easy for everybody and just send the entire task force a copy of the contract. Um, as you probably know, and I know as the, the, the legislators know, the state contracting process is an entire process that's very involved. And so to the extent that task force members do have concerns, once you've reviewed the contract and based on your experiences thus far, that there are concerns about that, then you can communicate that uh, obviously to Dr. Grills as she's the liaison from the task force to the Bunch Center, um, also to us, and then we can try to work co uh, cooperatively to address uh, some of those concerns. Thank you so much. Anyone else like to add to the discussion? I think, I think, oh, was, was there someone? Mm -hmm. So I guess to, to address Member Grill's comments, I completely hear you. And I just want to say, rest assured that, you know, although I didn't contact you directly, I did um, contact the DOJ, who then instructed me that I can contact the Bunch Center and the two communication firms directly. And that is what I did. Um, so I have access to the contract, and I don't mind sharing my screen, but I don't think we need to do that at this time. But when I read through the contract between the DOJ and the Bunch Center, I saw that they had missed two deliverables in the contract, January 31st date, which was about logistical support for the anchor organizations and providing information to the anchor organizations about the logistical support the Bunch Center is supposed to provide by virtue of the contract. But then they also missed miss the February 28th deliverable, which was the creation of the website that will host information about the listening session. Also, the contract mandated for the Bund Center to meet with the anchor organizations at least two times a month. Anchor orgs have reached out to me with their concerns because they have not met two times a month. In fact, this month they met, didn't meet at all. And in April, they only have one meeting scheduled, and that's on the April on April 12th. So those are just some of the few things also in terms of, and I said this yesterday, in terms of the logistical support, in the contract, there it is budgeted, I think it's $52,000 that the Bunch Center is supposed to provide the anchor orgs to support their listening sessions, whether that's with the recording equipment, a technician, and other things. But again, anchor orgs have reached out to me with their concerns and said they thought, because the Bunch Center has not communicated this to them, they thought that they had to use their stipend to secure a record, recording equipment, technician, and location cost. But when I read the contract, it clearly shows that it's the Bunch Center who's supposed to provide that on behalf of the 
of the anchor org. The anchor orgs are not supposed to dip into their stipend for that type of support, right? So th those are like four major things between the, the contract that I read between the DOJ and the Bunch Center. Those two deliverables that have been missed, uh, January 31st and 228, the fact they haven't communicated to the anchor org that they're supposed to provide logistical support to them, um, and in fact, they have, not all the anchor orgs have received their stipend, so many of the anchor orgs are using their own money to secure recording equipment and location, uh, locations for their planned hearings. And then again, they're not meeting two times a month, and that's super important. Like you have to, these anchor orgs who don't really have any or, uh, ties to each other before this process, you have to meet consistently in order to make this process really, really work. It has to be a collaborative effort. And if you're not meeting two times a month as required by the contract, you're barely even meeting once a month, I don't see where the progress will come in. So and, this, is why, you know, mm -hmm. this is why I wish you had actually called me, reached out, laid out your concerns, and so then, you know, clarification could be provided. So, for example, and I'm not going to do a go back and forth with you, it's 534, but I will say this notion about meeting twice a month with the with the bunch center. The ankle orgs were being protected from having to have too many group meetings so that the actual work that needs to be done could get done. So while they had they had a group meeting in the during the month, the ankle orgs were reached there was outreach to them multiple times from the professional facilitator who was working on behalf of the bunch center. And she did one-on-one -on -one meetings with those organizations. So I think that there's, there, there, we needed to have laid everything out, gotten clarification, and then where, there, where things were falling short, note that things are falling short and what's the corrective action plan, and where things are misunderstood, clarify that and move forward. So I just, again, I think process is important and that I wish you had reached out and laid these things out in a way that allowed people to coherently, cogently, effectively communicate back to you and the rest of the task force who now have all of these concerns and, well, not concerns perhaps, but questions in their mind around things for which there, there actually is no there there. And in terms of the website, the website, it may have been delayed. I don't know. I was out of the country. However, the website is up now. It, the web, there is a link on the Bunch Center, and they're still building that platform. So, again, it, 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 you're leaving an impression that may not, in fact, match with reality, and that, to me, is problematic. Okay, thank you. I'll just move on and, and just quickly for the record note my concerns about the communications firm. So earlier I addressed my concerns with the Bunch Center, but now I'm about to address my concerns with the communications firm. So like Member Montgomery Stepp stated at our last hearing, we said that the DOJ would relinquish um, their responsibility in terms of press inquiries to the communications firm. So that was decided. You know, months ago. <laughs> and so what that meant was that then the communication firms were going to field press inquiries that we received or that were forwarded 
uh, to them by the DOJ and then, um, you know, reached out to the task force members about press inquiries and press opportunities, um, along with, you know, talking about uh, um, uniform talking points that we could all access as task force members in the event that we are individually reached out to by press. That hasn't happened yet. In fact, I'm still having to, you know, wait for the DOJ to give me the emails that we received from the general reparations email, and then I have to look through each one to see which one is a press inquiry. So, in fact, if I didn't do that, let's say for the, the, the past, the January hearing, I would have missed a Rolling Stone interview about our expert witness, um, uh, Professor Kevin Green, right? If the communications firms were doing their job, they would have informed us, okay, there's a press inquiry from the Rolling Stone, who wants to be quoted or something like that. That's what we voted on for them to do, and they haven't done that yet. And I also reached out to them directly, and they sent me a, a, like a short-term communication strategy that they were going to do for this upcoming March meeting, but they didn't do any of it. The only thing they did was the urgent advisory meeting that was scheduled to be an hour, but it was just 15 minutes, and they gave out bad information. Someone asked for a website, and they gave an email, and it was the wrong email at that. And then I emailed them before the March hearing, and I asked them, Does pro do promotional flyers, are those included in, in your deliverables? I didn't get a response from them. They did ask if I wanted to meet um, in April 4th, but I asked them a particular question about this March hearing, and they didn't respond to that email. So, <laughs> I mean, am I not justified to, to, to share these concerns to the public? This is a public notice meeting. Like, should, I don't, <laughs> I'm not understanding why I'm being criticized for literally just doing my job. It's not about, this is not a public process. It is about if you have concerns and the intent is to make sure that things are on course, then there would have been other ways you could have expressed your concerns so that accurate information could be gathered, problems could be laid out, and people brought to the table to, to share how they're going to make corrections, if corrections are necessary. Um, and I'll call, call for the uh, agenda, and then we move on to the next item. Can I make a comment to uh, Camila? I have a motion. <clears throat> Chair Moore, so um, just putting aside the uh, shortcomings that we talked about, <clears throat> in order to have the meeting uh, in April, you know, very as productive as possible. I think it would be a good idea uh, to have a direct conversation with the comms team and the UCLA Bunch Center. And, and you know, they can look at the recording. of. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 